My name is Jonathan, as Pastor David said, and I am indeed one of the pastors at North Central Church just down the road. And uh, so good to be with all of you this morning. There's so many um, familiar faces and people that I have had the privilege of getting to know over the years through my um, friendship with with Pastor David. And um, just such a total honor to be with you guys today and preaching from God's Word. Uh, I wish my wife and kids were here with me today. My wife is leading singing at our at our home church today at North Central, um, but she sends her warmest greetings. I think we've got maybe a picture of the kids. Francesca on the left, our little rascal. Jonathan in the middle and Ava on the right. And I know what you guys are thinking. How did Gandalf end up with such cute kids? And uh, I was going to include a picture of my wife this morning so you would know how I ended up with cute kids, and I was going to send it over to Pastor David, but Pastor David said, nobody cares about that. <laughs> he said, nobody cares about that. So, so just imagine the most beautiful woman in the world, and that's who my wife is. Now, um, as brutally honest as your pastor is, I mean, as, as wonderfully honest, uh, <laughs> I, I still um, very much consider him to be my closest friend. And I was thinking this week about maybe a moment or a picture that might uh, accurately describe him um, and, and really kind of illustrate what I, what I want to say about him. And I was reminded of this picture right here. <laughs> Just take that in for a second. All right? Happiness comes from an empty plate of dinosaur barbecue, as you see. And what's interesting, too, I don't know if you can tell from from this photo, but he's actually on the phone here. One of his hands is got his phone pasted to his ear. But what's so interesting to me about that is Pastor David is so efficient. Have you have you noticed that? He's always doing more than one thing at one time. So instead of taking those, those, those napkins that they give you, the wet wipes, he, he just bypassed that completely, picked up his phone and just curled his fingers outward like that. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's something else. He's probably calling in his dessert right here, <laughs> right? Or, or he could be making, like at this time, when he was working for the network, he could be making some like high-level leadership decision. You would have no idea. You have no idea, because he does it all in such, in such perfect stride. I like, uh, you see Pastor Rob back there? Pastor Rob Kirk, most laid-back guy on the planet, and he's just in awe of <laughs> Pastor David's efficiency. It's good. Uh, in all seriousness, David has really helped to shape my life and my ministry and um, most importantly, my theology, which is the most important thing about me. It's the most important thing about you, what we believe about God. Um, so I'm so thankful and grateful for our friendship. Um, when people ask me what I do for a living, and I, and I say I'm a worship pastor, I usually get the question back, what is that? And uh, my standard answer has become, I'm the person who strategically disappoints people by either singing new songs or old songs (laughs) in church. 
And that's, that's only funny because there's a little bit of truth in it. And this morning, we're going to talk about worship, which is a massive subject, right? This huge umbrella of topics and avenues that uh, we could discuss. But at least for today, we're going to look through the lens of Colossians 1, and we're going to take a look at what makes the worship of God possible in the first place, okay? And I believe this is such an important conversation because I am totally convinced that what we believe about worship directly informs what we believe about God. So I'm, I'm totally passionate about this topic. And on the front end, we'll tackle what we'll call a worship fallacy, Um, that I think we can sort of inadvertently wander into, especially when we lose sight of Colossians 1. And as we do that, we'll kind of contrast that fallacy with what I believe is a biblical truth about worship. And hopefully as we work through that together, we'll discover sort of a newfound depth in our understanding of both what worship is and also who or what makes worship possible in the first place. So, so let's take a look at our text this morning, Colossians 1, 15 through 23, and we should have it on the screen behind. I'm going to read from the NLT. It says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Love verse 21. This includes you who were once far away from God. Somebody say, this includes me. me. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence. Don't miss that, guys. He has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. That's God's word. And I love what Paul is doing here. 
Um, You'll notice that before he dives into the work of Jesus and all that he's accomplished for us, he's first establishing his supremacy and his authority. And he's doing so with incredible imagery and, and, and poetry. And we're being reminded of some really remarkable truths about who Jesus is. And, and you don't have to write these down, but, but let me just quickly review what, what, what's being said here by Paul. First, he's saying, don't forget that, that Jesus is God. He's the visible image of an invisible God. Secondly, he's reminding us of the role that Jesus played in creation and that all things, of course, were created through and for him. Thirdly, we're learning that Jesus predated creation. Not only that, but he's continually sustaining creation. Fourth, we find that Jesus is the head of the church and he's the very beginning, which means, of course, he's the first in everything. And then lastly, fifth, we're told that God has reconciled us sinners back to himself through Jesus's work on the cross. Now, add all that up and you've got the good news pronouncement of the gospel, really, in a nutshell. But what does that have to do with how we worship God? Now, before we get to the good news of worship for the Christian, uh, let's take a quick look at the bad news, okay? And I think that'll help make the good news a whole lot gooder, okay? Let's take a quick trip back to the Old Testament. Maybe you remember Uh, that Israel's interaction with God occurred under a very specific set of circumstances and and instructions and mandates from God, right? God had given very clear instructions as to how he was to be approached and worshipped, especially in the book of Leviticus. And he did that because he's holy. And anything that gets near to God that isn't holy is destroyed. So he loved his people so much that that he gave them very clear instructions so they would know, they would have clear instructions as to how they could be with him and not die. And if you're having trouble kind of picturing that, that can be tough to imagine from a loving God. I think it can be helpful to think of God's presence a little bit like the sun, right? It's pure power, it's, it's pure goodness, but when, when something mortal, mortal and, and corruptible gets near it, that thing is consumed, okay? So a lot like the sun, God's presence is good, but it's also very dangerous. So imagine this in today's context. Your worship team is up here playing, and maybe there's a wrong note that is sung or an untuned guitar. Maybe there's a, a missed drum beat or something happens, right? And then immediately that offending musician is consumed. Their life is snuffed out. Now, some of you would be like, yes, <laughs> I've been waiting for that. But you know what a more uh, appropriate response would be? Run, right? Get out. Get away from the presence and the, and the holiness of God. But sometimes our response to that, and unfortunately this is just inherent, I think, in the human heart. Our response to that is, see, you better, you better have your, your act together when you come in to worship God. Your life better be perfect. It better be all together. You better not have sin. But that belief let me share with you, is hugely 
problematic. And here's why. God declares the heart of man in Jeremiah 17 to be wicked. Well, how bad is it? It's so bad that it's beyond understanding and only God really understands it. And then he says something that's very scary. He says he's going to repay us for our wickedness. And we say, well, I'm not wicked. You know, I don't, I don't do wicked stuff. But then Jesus comes along and he reiterates and he emphasizes what's in Jeremiah 17. And he says, oh, you've thought about sin? You're just as guilty as the one who's done it. It's your heart that's the problem. It's not on the outside. It's on the inside. It's insidious. So do you see what's happened here? God has literally leveled the playing field now between the outwardly good and the outwardly bad. The outwardly religious and the outwardly irreligious. He's put us all in the same boat now with the same declaration, guilty. This is not good. Quite frankly, it's really bad news, but there is good news. There is good news. And I think it's even more good when we rightly understand worship. So here's what we'll do. Let's take a look at this common fallacy in the way that we identify what worship is. And then as we go, we'll kind of look um, for a way to help us redefine the kind of joy uh, that can be found in true worship. Okay, so here's our worship fallacy. Worship is, this is very simple, but worship is primarily singing. Now, why do, we, why do we believe that? What's informing us of that? First, our uh, Christian subculture has uh, inadvertently, I think, done some things to the word worship that adds to the confusion. For example, I got this email from uh, a church leader's publication and it read this. It said, Matt Redman turns Times Square into a worship room with 10,000 reasons. Okay, and then there's this zoomed out picture uh, with thousands of people there in Times Square. And they're all kind of jammed up to a stage that Matt Redman is on. And the, and the subtitle of that email really caught my eye. And it said, what it looks like when we worship God in the midst of a secular culture. Now, this is a little bit nuanced, but here's what I thought. If a one-off concert is what it looks like when we worship God in the midst of a secular culture, then what happens when the concert's over? What does that say for those who are tirelessly laboring alongside the homeless, the poor, right? the widows of, of that city? How about, how about those that are creating culture and creating music and creating art and using their status as image bearers to reflect the creator? The second reason I think we believe that worship is primarily singing is our language. Our language really informs what we believe about worship. And I'm guilty of both of the examples I'm about to give, so don't feel bad. 
But we say things like this in reference to congregational singing. Worship was great today. And that's okay. But we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful because, again, if only the singing is worship, then what was the preaching? And what was the observance of communion together? And what was the time we spent in relationship with one another, right? Encouraging one another and edifying one another. Here's the other problem that arises when we equate worship with only singing. For most of us, our music-related preferences, especially in the church, can be a sensitive issue, right? How many of you believe that? We, we love what we love, and we think that anyone who kind of disagrees with our musical preferences is wrong, and, and that's just our human nature. So here's what happens. When, when younger folks show up uh, and attempt to introduce new sounds or new ideas or new songs, we can feel alienated, uh, hurt, maybe even left out. But the same thing goes for the younger generation. If you take the younger generation, you drop them into an environment uh, from their parents or grandparents' generation, you know, worship is going to be like the furthest thing from their mind. It's going to be more like, when's, when's this, oh, when's this going to be over? And here's what we discover. Here's what we discover. If only music and singing is worship, then when you mess with or you tweak somebody's musical preferences, you're threatening what they believe is their access to God. And if that's true, if that's true, then God forgive us for losing sight of Colossians 1, that tells us what, as a result of Christ's work, he has brought us into God's presence. Right? Did you catch that? Not the worship leader, not the song, not the sound, not the environment, not the pastor, not how you feel as you sing. So what's the role of the worship team then if not to bring us into the presence of God? I want to suggest to you today that it's to point us to the one who brings us into the presence of God, right? Our true and better worship leader, Jesus. So let's reframe this thing. If, if it's not only singing, then what's worship all about? And here's our worship truth. Worship truth. Worship is about who or what our God is and about how we choose to live. Worship is about who or what our God is and about how we choose to live. Let me tell you the story of Alexander the Great. About 300 years before Jesus was born, um, the king of Macedonia had fallen to an assassin. And so his noble son named Alexander uh, took his throne. And he was a student of Aristotle. Uh, he was as sharp as a razor. And, and really the dude had all the ambition in the world. And so he started conquering neighboring countries and regions. And, and he, first he conquered Gaza, and, and then he conquered Egypt and Babylon. And eventually, it was most of the known world. But by this time, after this amazing conquest was over, 
his guys were tired. His, his men were tired, and they were like, we're not, we're not doing anymore. Like, we've, we, we've taken over the world. We're going home. So Alexander the Great, who's now largely alone, decides he wants to spend some time and, and kind of take inventory of all his success. And so he gathers his advisors, and uh, they enter his tent, and, and we, they sit down together. And right there, Alexander the Great wept. Was it from happiness? Now, was he overwhelmed with all the emotion um, because of all that he had accomplished? No, the reality is it was despair that was causing him to weep. Why? Because he thought he had everything. He thought he had accomplished all his goals, right? Checked everything off his list. But in reality, he had nothing. And the reason why is because his idol of success in battle and literally taking over the world... Uh, and ultimately, um, a picture of him as king, that idol didn't hold its end of the bargain. And he thought for sure it would bring him happiness. Instead, what it did was it left him dissatisfied and in utter despair. And his God, as lofty as it was, it couldn't bear the weight of his worship. Theologian G.K. Chesterton puts it this way. He says, when we cease to God, or when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. When we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. So here's what that means. Uh, worship doesn't stop and start. Okay? Imagine asking Adam and Eve in the garden when they worship their response probably would have been something like, when do we not worship? They, they might say something like, everything we're doing happens in perfect communion and in relationship with Creator God. It's all worship, and we're continually doing it. But wait a second. What really doesn't work in today's context, because if we are continually worshiping, then what happens when we sin? Certainly that can't be worship. I want to suggest today that it is, but it's worship in the wrong direction. Here's what happens. Our hearts become uh, misaimed, misguided. Our worship is misaimed, right? It, it locks on to a very different target. And you know what the target is? It's anything. It's anything, right? We know what our idols are, right? Power, control, right? Acceptance, material things, image, the way we appear to other people. You know what? Even good things, even good things like work and achievement and family and relationship and even rest will make anything our God, and it's absolutely endless. So here's what I think we need to catch this morning. Idolatry is nothing more than misaimed worship. We never begin it. We never stop it. We only aim our worship. Okay, so how do we change? How do we become people who worship God and not our idols? How do we properly aim our worship? Well, here's what fundamental religion says. And very interestingly, this is the same thing that a secular culture would say in terms of finding fulfillment. Here's how you do it. You get busier. You know, you try harder. You do more 
right? You make it happen. You, you kind of hunker down and you finally do it. You believe in yourself. You check everything off your checklist like Alexander the Great. But I want to suggest to you a different way this morning. We worship our way into sin. We've got to worship our way out. Thomas Chalmers calls it the expulsive power of a new affection. Here's what happens. We start to behold God. We start to look at Jesus in his word. We behold him in prayer. And you know what happens over time? Our idols hold less and less power over our lives. And I think that's what the old song meant when it said, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen. So if we're supposed to be doing that beyond singing and beyond music, then what does that look like in a very practical sense? If you know me at all, you know that I I love food, and uh, it's probably the sole reason Pastor David and I have stayed as close as we have for so long. That and the Yankees, of course. Big one last night. Come on. But recently, I've been learning the science behind bread making. And I don't mean like bread machine, bread making where you kind of toss some ingredients into one of those machines and over time like this cube looking thing sort of, sort of pops out. I'm talking about like European style rustic bread that's made with long fermentation, and, and, and you kind of combine some simple God-given ingredients by hand, and then you carefully mix them together, and then you let the microscopic bacteria that God put into the air go to, go to work, and then uh, things start to happen, right? There's peptides that are breaking down the gluten, the yeast begins to multiply, and that dough miraculously and, and according to the laws of physics and chemistry that God put into place, that dough begins to rise and, and bubble and take on life. And then the next day, you get to join in God's work, right? And you shape it and work it with your hands, and then you bake it at a secret temperature that you can never tell anybody. And it rises even more, right? And then it forms this, like, dark, amber, crunchy exterior, and then you've got this tender and chewy interior, and then you recognize that all the senses that God has given you are fully engaged, right? Because you're starting to see the bread, you touch it, you smell it, you taste it. Listen, you can even hear it. When you take it out of the oven and you put it on the cooling rack, it kind of quietly pops like Rice Krispies do. And I'm not even going to talk about taking that bread and, you know, dipping it hot in like extra virgin olive oil with maybe some uh, meats and cheeses nearby. Am I speaking anybody's language this morning? Come on. Hey, would you guys like to see? Oh, you already see it. There it is. Would you like to see what it looks like when you have a daughter that's a bigger foodie than you are? Look at that, gazing longingly at the bread. Let's pray she never looks at boys like that, right? Not till she's 30, not till she's 30. All right, so now that we're all salivating, what's the point? Here's what I'm trying to say, gang. What if even that is worship? 
what if by thanking God for what he's given so plentifully, right, in flour and water and salt and yeast and intentionally acknowledging the laws of science that he has established and by recognizing the knowledge that he's given us to utilize and combine those ingredients that he created, we're now able to turn the mundane bread into an act of worship. Later in Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul says to let words about Christ dwell in us richly by singing together. So important. And then he follows it with this, whatever you do, whatever you do, In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So listen, singing is a biblical mandate. It helps us remember who God is, and it helps us respond to him together. It's so important. But you know what? Worship for the Christian includes so much more. It includes so much more. Right? Our work, our rest, our most joyous moments, our saddest days, from the most mundane things we do during the week to the most rewarding things we do during the week. Let me remind you of our scripture today, especially verse 22, Colossians 1. Let's look at it again. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ and his physical body. As a result, he has brought you, he has brought you into his own presence. And you are holy. You are blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. That's what's so amazing about Jesus' victory over death. Not only did it secure a glorious, eternal existence for us, but we're able to stand before him today without a single fault. Why? Because we don't have any faults? Of course not. We have many. But thanks be to God, what he required, he also provided in his son. What he required, which was perfection, he also provided in his son. And that perfection has been applied to us. So this morning, we're invited to worship him in everything. You know why? Because in Christ, we lack nothing. And that's an exciting reality. It's an exciting reality. Let's pray together. God, we're so thankful for your word that reminds us of the method that you used to bring us into your presence. We don't attempt to accomplish that on our own. God, forgive us. We rely on the righteousness of your son. We rely on the perfection of Christ applied to us. We rely on what you did when that veil was torn when that separation was no more. God, thank you for your spirit that's at work reminding us of the truths of your gospel, the good news pronouncement that we were enemies of yours, 
estranged from you, but you did everything necessary to bring us back and call us sons and daughters. God, we're so grateful. We're so grateful. We commit to worshiping you in everything. Spirit, would you help us to re-aim our worship when it goes astray? Point our hearts to the beauty of Jesus once again. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Amen.